Today's reading of the scripture is from Exodus, Exodus chapter 6, 28, all through chapter 7, 13. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I'm the Lord, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron should be your prophet. You should speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron should tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and the wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians should know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from, another, from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron 83 years old, when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord has said. This is God's word. Go ahead and keep your Bibles open to Exodus 6 and 7. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, these are ancient words. Been around for millennia. Yet they are just as true and life-changing today as when you first spoke them. So would you give us ears to hear what you are saying this morning through your word? We thank you for the privilege of opening your word and pray that we uh, would be those who love you by listening to what you're saying and that your spirit would change our hearts in the process. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we are returning finally to the book of Exodus. It's been a little bit of a detour into a few things uh, at Advent and the turn of the year. Uh, but we are back into this beautiful story of God's love and power and faithfulness played out in the lives of ancient Israel, uh, but not merely as a record of what God once upon a time did. Uh, Exodus is the pattern of God's saving work in all times for all peoples, and it's a pattern that is ultimately taken up and fulfilled in Christ. And yet, where we left off, uh, Israel is still in bondage. They came to Egypt as a family of refugees seeking relief from a devastating famine. And through uh, rather horrible circumstances, they, they found refuge uh, in Egypt because God prepared a way for Israel to find this temporary home by sending Joseph ahead of his family. And there in Egypt, they thrived uh, for Several generations, they grew from a small, uh, extended family really into 
a great nation, uh, which is when a new pharaoh comes along who doesn't know Joseph or, or how God used Joseph to grow Egypt, uh, a new pharaoh comes along and sees Israel's growing strength, not as the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham that they would become a mighty nation and that those uh, who blessed them would be blessed in return. He didn't see it like that. Instead, he saw their growth as a threat to his own kingdom and glory. And so the Exodus story began with oppression and evil. The king of Egypt turned uh, Hebrew refugees into slaves. He oppressed them. He used them and exploited them in order to build his own mighty kingdom, treating them harshly. And when that didn't slow their growth, he began a government-sponsored systematic program of murder, targeting the Hebrew baby boys. Uh, First, trying to take them out through the Hebrew midwives, and when that didn't work, commanding all of his people in Egypt that if they see a Hebrew baby boy, take him and throw him into the Nile. That was his command. But in chapter 2, we read about the boy who lived, the one who got away, whose life was not only preserved, but he was rescued by Pharaoh's own daughter and raised in Pharaoh's own household, the boy who would grow up to challenge Pharaoh on God's behalf, demanding that he let God's people go. But so far... Not so good. Uh, To begin with, Moses has has always been an unlikely candidate for leading a revolution. He spent his first 40 years in luxury and privilege in in, in Pharaoh's household, and the next 40 years in relative obscurity as a fugitive in Midian, cut off from his people. When God approaches him at the burning bush, Pharaoh, or Moses tries to turn the job down. He, doesn't, he thinks God's got the wrong guy. But it wasn't a job offer. This was a call. A call that, that God is going to equip him for with his very own name and power and presence and sending him. Uh, a call that God even accommodates Moses' insecurity uh, by teaming him up with his brother Aaron, who's going to speak to others on his behalf. But Despite the the initial warm welcome that Moses and Aaron receive when they kind of lay out the plan to the Israelites, uh, the end of chapter 4, pretty much everything has gone downhill from there. In chapter 5, Moses uh, and Aaron appeared before Pharaoh for the very first time on God's behalf, telling him, you got to let God's people go that they can go worship him. And that backfired in a big way. Uh, Not only did Pharaoh refuse, he increased the severity of Israel's slavery. So much that now Israel is mad at Moses as well. When we last looked at Exodus, uh, we saw Moses kind of reacting to that initial failure. Uh, He goes to God complaining, essentially, that, that you're not living up to your name. You sent me in your name. You said you were going to do this. I said and did what you told me to do, and it didn't work. God reaffirmed his name and his plan in chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, that what I said at the burning bush, I still mean. Your people, my children, are going to come to know me by name through the experience of salvation. They will know that I am the Lord when I rescue them and bring them to the land that I've promised. But when we come to chapter 6, verse 9, we see that Israel is still not buying it. Moses spoke thus, what God told him to say. He, He told that, he spoke that to the people of Israel. But they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Israel, at this stage of the story, is beyond hope. They are so broken. They are so hurt. They have been let down by what feels like both Moses and God, that to hope again for things to actually change, that is just too risky. 
They can never get their hopes up again. The pain of being let down again would be too much. Is God really going to save them? Is Moses really the guy through whom he's going to do it? But Israel's not the only one asking those kinds of questions at that point in the story. If if we're following along, we're asking those exact same questions. This doesn't look like it's going very well. Is God really going to save them? Is Moses really the guy? And as we look at our passage this morning, we find Moses is asking the questions too. That's where he's at uh, in Exodus 6.10 through 7.13. We only read part of that uh, a minute ago, but we're going to look at the whole section together. And yet, while it has taken Moses a long time to come to grips with his call, in this section we finally see a significant transition. What begins as hesitancy and insecurity based on his past failures been down that road before, and based on the intimidating circumstances. He's got to go speak to the most powerful, violent king in the ancient world at that time. Based on the past failures and intimidating circumstances, he starts with hesitancy and insecurity, but he ends this section in confident obedience to speak God's word regardless of the results. So, what happens between Moses' hesitancy and insecurity in 6.10 through 13 and his confident obedience in the presence of Pharaoh in 7.8 through 13? What happens between those to convince both us and Moses of his call? Well, there are two things. First is the clarification of Moses' heritage in uh, 614 to 27. And that helps the questioning reader take confidence in God. Uh, the second is the clarification of God's plan in 7, 1 through 7. And that helps the questioning prophet Moses also take confidence in God. But it begins with hesitancy. The hesitancy of God's prophet, 610 through 30. So look in your Bibles with me. Chapter 6, verse 10. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. They say that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. That's pretty much what Moses has experienced so far, and it's pretty much what it sounds like God is telling him to keep doing. Go before Pharaoh, tell him to let the people of Israel go, and expect it to work this time. Uh, You know, with failure behind him and an intimidating foe in front of him, you can see the the honesty in Moses being hesitant and insecure. Why in the world should this work? My own people will not listen to me. Why should Pharaoh listen to me? And he describes his problem as being of uncircumcised lips, which is a rather colorful way of describing either his poor speaking ability that he talked about earlier in chapter 4, or perhaps even more generally, just his unfitness to represent the covenant God. I'm the wrong guy. Either way, he's protesting to God that he's got the wrong guy. I cannot get the results that you need. And as readers following the story, we're kind of wondering the same thing at this point. But once again, we see two things that are going to help alleviate that hesitancy, both for us and for Moses. And the first one is more for us than for Moses, and that's the clarification of his heritage through a genealogy in verses 14 to 27. You know, if you're reading through Exodus, 
and you come up to, to verse 14, it feels like you just got stuck in the mud all of a sudden. It's just this abrupt shift in the story. We're going into a genealogy. And that's not an uncommon thing for Old Testament narratives, to include a genealogy at different points in the story. Genesis does it regularly. Uh, Ruth ends with a genealogy. First Chronicles starts with nine chapters of genealogy. Uh, if you're ever having a hard time sleeping, that's you know one of those places you might go. It, uh, it's it's got its purpose, but it's there. Um, and and when it, whenever a uh, uh, a narrative includes a genealogy, even Matthew uh, starts with a genealogy in the New Testament. Whenever they do that, the information there is not just for curiosity's sake or as a historical record. It is contributing to the story in some way. Maybe as a fast-forward button. That's kind of what Genesis 5 and Genesis 10 are doing. They're taking the story from Adam, and now we're going to fast-forward up to Noah. And then we're going to take the story from Noah's sons, and we're going to fast-forward up to Abraham. So that genealogy is like the fast-forward button. Or sometimes it's like a mid-credit teaser at the end of the story to kind of show you what's coming next, like the book of Ruth. Sometimes, in the case of Exodus 6, it's like a flashback to reveal to us, up to this point, unknown information about a significant character that helps us process the story we're reading uh, with better information. And that's what Exodus is doing here. Uh, You'll notice um, that the genealogy really is an interruption into the flow of the story. Notice how the last few verses of chapter 6 pretty much repeat verses 11 and 12. Moses' complaint about being of uncircumcised lips and God's call for him to go and speak to Pharaoh anyway. It's clearly an interruption, which means it's there to kind of address the complaint Moses has. His lack of qualification. Something, you know, this genealogy in some way is designed to help alleviate the tension we might have as readers as to whether or not Moses is really the guy. There's no evidence that Moses actually received this genealogy. This is for us, not so much for him. The author wants us to know something about his heritage. And, and so what do we actually find when we look at, at it? The genealogy, if you look at verse uh, 14, it, it starts off pretty normal, pretty standard issue genealogical record. And it's working its way through each of the 12 tribes of Israel. The same list we saw in chapter 1, it starts with Reuben and his family and goes on to Simeon and his family. But then something odd happens. It gets to Levi and it gets stuck. And it never moves past Levi. Because this genealogy is going toward someone. And, and, and you, you see the details of Levi's uh, descendants until it arrives at the intended destination, which is Moses and Aaron. This is really just about clarifying who they are and where they come from. And we know that by the amount of detail that we read about them, especially Aaron's family. And we know it because this of, of the way that the genealogy concludes, verses 26 and 27. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt. This Moses and Aaron. So want you to be clear that the guys we're talking about, this is where they come from, this Moses and Aaron. And, and it seems that, that he's clarifying two things for us by doing that. First, it confirms for us that Moses and Aaron really are of a Levitical heritage. Up to this point, their identities have been pretty obscure. Uh, we didn't know the names of their parents. Moses didn't even get named until he got adopted later. And, and so, you know, we knew there was a son of Levi, but we didn't know much of the details. Well, here you have the details, and which is especially important for Aaron and the role that he's going to pray, uh, going to play as the, the head of the priesthood. But it also shows us that what seemed to be kind of obscure for us as readers who is this Moses guy? That has not been hidden from God. 
This genealogy reveals the providence of God, how he has been at work to raise up Moses and Aaron intentionally. The story has been moving toward them, even though we didn't know it. And not only to them, but to several other key characters that we meet in this genealogy who are going to play a role later. Aaron's sons, Korah, Aaron's nephew, Phineas. And so whatever doubts we as readers might have had about Moses so far, God intends to put those to rest by showing us this genealogy, that, that these are the guys he has been at work to raise up for this very moment. All of history so far has been leading to this. It's not unlike how the genealogy at the beginning of Matthew's gospel functions, walking through the history of God's people, showing us that it's not been random or, or aimless, but the whole thing has been organized to lead up to this climactic point, the birth of Jesus Christ. That's what this is doing. And it gives us confidence that, okay, God knows what he's doing and who he's talking about. But what about Moses? What about his lack of confidence? How does, how does he take confidence in his own call? What is it that shakes him out of his own hesitancy such that he is able to speak prophetically to the king in obedience to God? Well, that's what we see in chapter 7, verses 1 through 7, where God clarifies his plan for Moses, the role that the prophet will play. So 6 was clarifying his heritage. Now he's clarifying God's plan. And he starts by bringing clarity to Moses and Aaron's identity, who they are in verses 1 through 2. So look there with me. Chapter 7, 1 through 2. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. Now, this really is nothing new in the story. We have heard lines like this several times before. It's the point that God's been making all along, that he is not sending Moses out of Moses' own authority. Moses is not a revolutionary or a rebel. He is a representative of God. Uh, it's like, if you think about it, it's like a modern-day ambassador. So when the president of the United States sends an ambassador to speak to the leaders of a foreign nation, it carries the very authority of the president. It's as if the president himself were there. And so Moses will be as God to Pharaoh. It's like God is there when Moses gives these words. And yet, since Moses has been a bit unsure uh, about his speaking ability and, and God has accommodated that by giving him Aaron, uh, it's also as if the president has not only sent his ambassador, but given him a translator or a spokesman as well. So the message still carries the same weight. The ambassador still has the same role and authority. He just has help getting it across. And so it is that, that since Moses is like God to Pharaoh, that kind of makes Aaron like his prophet, his spokesman. But the point of it all is that their role is not to make up whatever they want to make up or do whatever they can to get Moses to comply their role is to say to Pharaoh whatever God tells them to say. They are to speak all that he commands. And what they say carries the very authority of God. But just as important as clarifying their role is clarifying the expectations that they should bring with them into that role what God is actually sending them to do, the, the real nature of their prophetic ministry. It is not, as both they and Israel assumed, simply to persuade Pharaoh to let them go by the end of the conversation, such that his refusal amounts to their failure. If that were the case, that were the goal, then this would indeed be an insane plan, doing the same thing over and over, expecting different results. But God is doing something much bigger than that. 
as he explains in verses 3 to 5. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, uh, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. So it's not Moses' job to get results. It's Moses' job to speak God's word regardless of the results. That's his job. In fact, God's plan is that Pharaoh won't listen. God is going to harden his heart. Next week, uh, Travis is going to walk us through the plague narratives, uh, the signs and wonders that God is going to send Moses and Aaron to do before Pharaoh again and again. And, And again and again, we're going to see Pharaoh harden his heart. Or sometimes it says God hardens his heart, describes it both ways. God's plan is that Pharaoh will not listen. He tells him that up front. Why? Because God is not trying to persuade Pharaoh. He is preparing him for judgment. That's what God is doing here. Which sounds kind of harsh. I mean, why not give the guy a chance to comply? But if you think about it this way, the trial is already over. The verdict has already been issued. The point of the story we're at is now the execution of the sentence. That's what's happening here. The sentence is unfolding, and that sentence is judgment. A judgment that is at the same time a just punishment for Pharaoh's willful crimes, his oppression and evil and slavery and murder, trying to thwart the promises of God. So it is a a just punishment for Pharaoh and his crimes and the sovereign plan of God to save his people and display his glory. Both of those things at the same time. It is through their experience of judgment that Egypt is going to come to know who the Lord is. If you can remember uh, back a bit when we looked at chapter 5, when Moses spoke to Pharaoh the first time and told him to let Israel go, if you remember Pharaoh's reply, 5 verse 2, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. Moreover, I will not let Israel go. Pharaoh's problem is that he didn't know who Yahweh was, nor did he care. Well, God is going to answer his ignorance in a way that he'll never forget. Chapter 7, verse 5. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. You don't know who I am? You're going to find out when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Egypt comes to know God by name through experiencing his judgment for sin. But it's through those exact same actions that Israel will also come to know the Lord by name, not in his judgment, but in his salvation. The mighty hand that judges Egypt is at the same time saving Israel. And so God's plan is not to try and persuade Mo- to persuade uh, Pharaoh. That's not Moses' job. His plan is to prepare Pharaoh for judgment that he might save Israel and display his glory so that Israel would know who he is and Egypt would know who he is and all of the nations watching this play out will know that Yahweh is God. And as the story moves forward, you see that happening. Moses' non-Israelite father-in-law sees what God does and worships him. When, when they get to the land, uh, uh, Rahab, that's her name, Rahab, we've heard about who your God is and all that he did. We're on your side. He's the true God. God's reputation goes before him. And so Moses need no longer be afraid of failure. If this is God's plan, not to just persuade Pharaoh, but to prepare him for judgment, Moses no longer need be afraid of failing if by failing that means he doesn't convince Pharaoh. Uh, 
Pharaoh's not going to listen. That's guaranteed. Moses' job is to speak God's word to Pharaoh through Aaron, regardless of the results. That's his call. And with that clarified call, we see a renewed confidence in Moses' ministry, a confidence that we see throughout the rest of the book. He no longer argues with God about whether or not he's supposed to obey and do these things. They might have conversations about it not working, but he embraces his call and his role from this point on. There is an emboldened and obedient Moses and Aaron who do, quote, just as the Lord commanded, as it says several times there. And chapter 7, 8 through 13 shows us then the next encounter with Pharaoh, which is what sets up the ten plagues to follow. So verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourself by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. So far, so good. But then Pharaoh deploys his countermeasures in verse 11. He summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, by, they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He would not listen to them as the Lord had said. I mean, that doesn't look good. Uh, That kind of undercuts God's uniqueness and power. Pharaoh's magicians are able to imitate the sign that God sent Moses and Aaron to do. But there are subtle clues that this is still going in the direction of God's success. Uh, For instance, the magicians may be able to conjure up a few tricks with their dark arts, but they can only make the problem worse. They can create more snakes and more blood and more frogs, but they can't get rid of the ones God makes. Moreover, when Moses' staff swallows up the magician's serpents, it's both a declaration of Yahweh's supremacy and a subtle foreshadowing of Egypt's ultimate demise, being swallowed by the Red Sea, which is the only other time that Hebrew verb for swallow is used in this book to talk about the staves and the Egyptians being swallowed up in judgment. So this looks and feels a lot like failure, but it's really success. Not only in the subtle hints at God's supremacy, but most importantly, in the simple fact that Moses and Aaron obeyed God. They actually did and said what he told them to do. That is success in this story. They put away past failures. They set aside the intimidating circumstances. They trusted God and spoke his word to Pharaoh regardless of the results. Results that don't look positive to us. Pharaoh hardening his heart, but are exactly what God ordained. And it's only that kind of trust in God. It's only with that kind of trust that they're going to be able to go before Pharaoh again and again and again with no progress in convincing him to let Israel go, but full confidence that the results are in God's hands. When God calls a servant, he equips him with his word and sends him to speak even if no one's listening, even if no one's listening. And such is often the call of ministry. The job of the prophet is not to make God's word effective or easier to swallow, to persuade people by any means necessary. The job of God's prophet, whether we're talking about ancient Israel or modern preacher, is to declare God's word clearly and faithfully, entrusting the results to God. That's the call. 
Moses played a very unique role in Israel's history and in, in God's overall redemptive plan. A very unique role. But we've been sent into the world with a unique message as well. A message of both judgment and salvation. That, that sin really is sinful. And God will deal justly with it. But grace really is sufficient because Christ's blood really does cover it all. Christ came as the prophet, the priest, the king, and died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. And it's in his cross that we see both the judgment of God and the salvation of God come together for God's glory to display his love. Just as God judged Egypt's sin and through that judgment saved Israel, so in the cross, God judges our sin. Christ went to the cross for judgment. Not what he deserved, but what we deserved. In the cross, God judges our sin, dealing decisively with it. And through that judgment, brings us into salvation. Because our sin has been dealt with. He frees us from sin and death, all who believe, and thus displays his glory and beauty and love. Judgment, salvation come together for our good and God's glory in the cross. That is the truth. That is our hope. That is the message we've been given to depend on for our own lives, and to speak to this world. A message that we're called to proclaim regardless of the results. After all, it's it's often said that the same sun that melts the butter also hardens the clay. We never know what God's going to do with the proclamation of his word. Same message that produced judgment in Egypt brought salvation to Israel. And so the same message that, that Christ died for sinners, for sins, for sinners, that's good news to those who trust him and bad news to those who don't. Speaking of his own gospel ministry, Paul describes it like this in 2 Corinthians 2. He says, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. The gospel has both effects on people. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak... In Christ, confident, obedient, clear, faithful declaration of God's word. Leaving the results in his hands. That's hard. That's hard to do. And just as Moses was tempted to be hesitant and and insecure in speaking God's word, every single one of us knows what that feels like. Just as he was tempted to either let his past failures or or the intimidating circumstances in front of him uh, get in the way, we can be tempted in the exact same way today. Whether from the pulpit or in our personal conversations or in our public witness. Uh, Sometimes we're tempted simply just to keep our mouths shut. Way easier than saying something. You know, maybe we've had a bad experience in the past where we kind of you know, put ourselves out there for Christ and it was thrown back in our face. Maybe it created some strained relationship. It, it didn't produce the results we wanted or expected. And so therefore, we're hesitant to go down that road again. Better to say nothing. Or, or, or maybe we're tempted based on, on past experience or based on what we anticipate happening uh, to, to change the message a little bit. To make it easier to swallow. Get rid of the, uh, the parts that we think people are going to choke on or be offended by and, and only emphasize the parts that they're going to like. 
or even to exchange those parts for something we think they're going to like even better. Tell them what they want to hear. If the goal is to get results, it's really easy to go down that road. But if God has called his servants and equipped them with his word and sent them into the world to speak his word, then we cannot stay silent, nor can we change the message based on what we think people want to hear or what we think will be more effective or, or acceptable. If you're a news anchor and you receive a report from the National Weather Service that an F5 tornado is bearing down on a local town, so we're talking 260 to 320 mile an hour winds, you can't stay silent because you don't think people will believe you. When's the last time a tornado hit Massachusetts? We don't get those here. Nor can you withhold or change the message because you're afraid it won't produce the results that, that you want. You know, we'll get better ratings if we tell people it's sunny outside. They'll tune in to us more often. You can't change the message or withhold it. The results aren't up to you. Your job is to tell the news, not because it's popular, but because it's true. Such is the call of prophetic ministry. For the church today, whether from the pulpit or in our personal conversations or our public witness, when, when God calls a servant, he equips them with his word and sends us to speak it regardless of the results. We must speak it from the pulpit to preach it clearly and faithfully, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.2. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. No messing with God's word because you think you'll get better results. The open, clear statement of the truth. That's what God calls the preacher to. And to preach it regularly, even if no one's listening. Paul says in his second letter to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. So preach the word when people are listening, when it's in season landing in good soil, and keep preaching it even if they're not, when it's out of season, falling on rocky soil. God doesn't call the preacher to be a soil tester, but to, to sow the seed and trust God with the results. That's the call. We must speak God's word from the pulpit. We must also speak it personally in our lives in our homes, in our schools, in our workplaces. Deuteronomy 26, Moses commands Israel to saturate their entire lives with the word of God. He says, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And the picture there is that every part of life is saturated with God's word. You're either sitting or standing. You know, whenever you're doing those things, you're either coming or going. As, as soon as you leave your house, you ought to see God's word on your gates when you leave. And then you ought to see it when you come back on the doorposts. All of life saturated with God's word. His message changes us. It changes others around us. And so, so we have been entrusted with this word as representatives of Christ. We must speak it in our personal lives. And we must speak it in the public square to governors and kings and presidents. You know, when you think of the role of the prophet in the Old Testament, his most frequent audience was the king or the ruler. King Pharaoh in our story, the kings of Israel or Judah, 
King Herod in the New Testament. Think of John the Baptist's ministry. The prophets were often known for their criticism of unfaithful kings, which is one of the reasons that, that Herod freaks out when people are speculating that Jesus is, is really John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets. Because all of those guys were known for speaking truth to corrupted power. And Herod's a little nervous. And so therefore, kings were some of the greatest persecutors of God's prophets throughout Scripture. They didn't always like their message. And so some prophets held back. Some prophets told the kings what they wanted. But if the prophet does not speak God's word to power, who will? This is one of the roles God has given his church today in a fallen world. He has equipped his church with a unique message that is able to be honest about both the sinfulness of sin and the sufficiency of God's grace at the same time. We have a message that allows us to speak both of those things. No other message can do that. You either have to make sin look less sinful or you have to uh, make grace look less effective. We have a message that changes lives. And we need to bring that to bear, not just on our personal lives, but on the challenges of a broken world today. Today is Sanctity of Life Sunday. It's a day we set apart to remember uh, the Supreme Court decision back 72, 73, um, uh, legalizing abortion in this country. We need to speak truth to the, the abortion industry on behalf of those who are most vulnerable in our society. And if we don't stand up and speak truth to that, that, that God is a God of life, and, and at the same time, speak mercy and compassion to those who've been taken in by the lies of that industry. Who's going to speak it? This is God's word to this question today. Tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Racial tensions in our nation are about as bad as they've been in decades. It's ugly. What message has God given the church to speak to that? Are we speaking peace to one another, regardless of skin color? And are we willing to speak truth to power when government policies or, or, or agendas or systems work against the dignity of all people? After all, we have a message that can do what no other message can do. It can take people from every tribe, every language, every nation, every skin color, and bring them together in one eternal family in Christ. Nothing else has the power to work reconciliation like the gospel of Jesus. And so we must embrace that prophetic ministry as a church in a fallen world today. The way one person has described it, the church is a prophetic minority, speaking God's word from the margins, not as rabble-rousers or revolutionaries. We pray for our leaders and those in authority. We submit to the governing powers that God has placed over us, but we do not tell them what they want to hear just so that we can stay close to those in power. That's been the prophet's folly for millennia. If I tell them what they want to hear, they'll keep asking me my opinion. We're fooling ourselves if we think we're not susceptible to that today. And so, so as a prophetic voice in a fallen world, the church is inevitably going to find ourselves weighing in on political issues. God has opinions on the things we debate in politics. What we, what we must never allow ourselves to do is to become partisan about it. We don't represent the interests of one party or another. We represent the interests of Christ. He is our king. We represent him. 
And so as we speak into this world, that needs to guide us in our prophetic voice in the public square. When God calls his servants, he equips them with his word and sends them into the world to speak, even if no one's listening. And so the results of our ministry, whether we're talking about the pulpit, our our personal relationships, our public witness, the result of those ministries, of those words, it's in God's hands, not ours. What has been given to us is to speak, is to speak to declare the judgment and salvation of God, which come together in Christ for our good and His glory. May we do so faithfully as His representatives on earth. Let's pray. Gracious Father, the idea of opening our mouths to speak what are often unpopular ideas is overwhelming. Lord, so often we find ourselves thinking about that call and going through the scenarios in our head of how people are going to react or what people are going to say or what the results are going to be. Lord, help us to move beyond past failures and intimidating circumstances and be faithful to speak your true gospel. May we depend on it for our own lives, and may we hold it out as representatives of your kingdom. Thank you that you are the one who does the work, that it is your word that does your work as the Spirit applies it to people's lives, that that you don't look to us for the results, but may we do what we're called to do and speak. And may you be pleased to work out your results for your glory and for the good of this world. In Jesus' name, amen.